Hey, uh, welcome, Midtown 12 South, uh, this Lord's Day. You are joining us in a time in which we uh, have kind of kicked off this revelation journey together. Uh, it excited us uh, as your staff and leadership to, uh, to kind of start to tackle the book of Revelation because we know that there are probably a few different angles that you come to this book. Uh, you might be new to church and you know nothing about Revelation, and I envy that because that's a great place to be. Um, you might be here and there's a lot we need to unlearn. If you grew up in uh, more conservative traditions, we've probably been taught some things about Revelation that aren't true. Uh, and then some of you have been around sort of the PCA understanding of Revelation your whole life and said so none of this is new to you. Uh, but we hope for wherever you find yourself on that spectrum that, uh, that the Lord will speak to you through this book, knowing that it can get a little weird at times. Um, but what we see uh, almost on every page is uh, a Jesus who just wildly loves his people. Uh, he fights for them, uh, he avenges them, uh, and then he secures them. And so that's what we hope that you'll walk away with. Uh, so this morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures, that's where we'll be. Um, remembering that Revelation, in addition to being this book uh, that has kind of some weird imagery and things like that, uh, some vivid word pictures that we can look at, um, it's easy to get lost in that and forget that Revelation is actually a letter. Uh, it's a note from Jesus written to uh, the churches in Asia, seven churches that uh, Christ has picked uh, to receive this letter from John. And this letter just sort of made its way around um, Asia at the time. And so we come to this morning, we're going to look this week at the church at Pergamum. Next week, we'll look at the church at Laodicea. Um, and this letter, John is writing what he saw. He's pinning this message from Jesus to Christians within Pergamum. And uh, John gives them a charge and a compliment from Jesus uh, because they are facing wild persecution, right? This is why John is actually in exile uh, the emperor Domitian at the time hates Christians, loves to see them get killed. Uh, and so he is writing to encourage those Christians who find themselves uh, in the midst of great persecution, uh, forceful and even unforceful compromise. Some Christians who have sort of uh, just gone along with um, what the government wants them to do. Um, but he wants, he wants them to know this. The faithful are rewarded. Uh, there is a reward for those who remain faithful because the faithful will receive an inheritance that this world could never match. And believers are encouraged to remain steadfast uh, in the face of great persecution. So let's look at Revelation 2. We're gonna, as I said, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. It'll be on the screens if you don't have a copy uh, of the scriptures with you. Uh, so let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word from Revelation chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you, you hold to, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Jesus, in uh, such a letter as this, and such a time as this, Lord, our hearts are anxious, our hearts are stirring, um, our hearts are joyful, our hearts are sad. Uh, Lord, in a room this size, uh, we run the whole gamut. Um, but what every heart in here needs is to hear from you. Uh, so Jesus, would you be so kind as to attend uh, the preaching of your word? Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Uh, would, you allow, would you allow us for even just a moment uh, to see uh, and to taste and to behold uh, the glory of a Jesus who loves us uh, more than we can stand? That's in his name we do pray. Amen. Uh, so that's the letter to the church at Pergamum. We're going to look at three things here. We'll look at the note, uh, the Nicolaitans, and the name given to us. So diving in first with the note from Jesus to Pergamum, uh, uh, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write these words. Revelation was a letter written to seven churches. Now, of course, there were more than seven churches in Asia at the time. There were more than seven churches uh, in the known world at this time. So there must have been a reason why this church was chosen. I just don't know what that reason was. And so it would serve us to know maybe why Pergamum, uh, why was this city important? Why was that church there uh, important? Um, the previous letter before this one uh, that we didn't read is to the church in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus would have been like the New York City uh, of Asia Minor. Uh, it would have been a cultural melting pot. It would have been sort of the, the tip of the spear when it came to anything innovative. Um, if Ephesus was New York City, then Pergamum would have been Washington, D.C. Uh, it would have been a place of great political influence. Uh, Rome would have had a, a, a massive presence in that city. Uh, in fact, there was a temple uh, built to Caesar Augustus. If you know anything about Caesar Augustus, um, he came up, he, he didn't come up with this phrase, but he sort of instituted the phrase Caesar Curios, which is Caesar is Lord in Greek. And so they, you know, they erected this temple to the worship of Augustus in the city. And that, that temple brought so much commerce uh, and so much influence to Pergamum that um, temples to other idols were being built. It sort of attracted this wildly polytheistic culture uh, in which there were so many different gods and everybody kind of worshiped all of them. Um, so you could see why this would be a problem for the Christian church. You could see why this would be a problem, a problem for Pergamum, a problem for Pergamum, um, for the Pergamese Christians who were there who Jesus is Lord. So we can't say that he's Lord and say that Caesar is Lord. And so this is why this letter comes to them because they're in this, uh, they're really in the crosshairs of culture. They're in the crosshairs of uh, sort of power from the government pressing down on them, but also faithfulness from Jesus holding them up. Uh, and so that's kind of where they find themselves because what we know about Pergamum, uh, if you care to study it, you're fine, not, not doing that. Um, they just wanted Christians to kind of leave them alone. Like, you can be a Christian here, just don't bother me with it. Uh, it's kind of like when Californians move to Tennessee. You know who you are. Um, I saw this bumper sticker that said, don't California my Tennessee. For Pergamum, it would have been like, don't Christianize my Pergamum. Like, you can come live here, just leave your values like back there. 
because we kind of play by our own set of rules here. But Christianity is monotheistic. There's one God, one Savior, one Lord, one baptism, one church. So the Christians here, they're, y'all, they're in a pickle. And they have Pergamum who's saying, hey, it's fine. We'll let, you, we'll let you exist among us, but if you step out of line, this is verse 13, you're going to get killed like your boy Antipas. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he'd be alive. So we'll let you hang out with us. We'll let you into our parties. We'll let you, we'll, you know, we'll have dinner with you and all that kind of stuff. Just don't tell us that Jesus is Lord because we don't care to hear that. Compromise in the name of tolerance, except if you step out of line, we'll kill you. So it's not tolerance at all. This is where the Pergamum church finds themselves. They've killed Antipas. There's a, Pergamum doesn't want them there. And Jesus comes in with this charge in this letter and he says, be like Antipas. Don't go and worship other gods. He mentions the Nicolaitans here. We'll get to them in just a second. He says, be like the faithful because there are some among you who are not. These Nicolaitans have slipped in. In Pergamese church, you've let a lion in the tent with you and it's gonna take your head off and you don't even see it. This note points out several things for them to keep an eye on. Chief among them is the Nicolaitans, which brings us to our second point, the Nicolaitans. In John's letter here, he expressly addresses the teachings of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. He doesn't tell us what they taught, Actually, history doesn't give us much insight, but we got some context clues here in this passage. In the story, uh, or in the letter to the church at Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse uh, 5 and 6, it says, Jesus says to them, remember, therefore, where you fall and repent and do the works that you did at first. And he says this, I commend you for this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus is, y'all, he's real stern with the Nicolaitans. I hate what you're doing. I hate what you're teaching. I hate what you're about. And so we find them in verse 15. We don't know a lot about what they taught, but Jesus compares them to Balaam, which if you know your Old Testament history is not a kind comparison. The church of Pergamum would have known exactly what that meant. If someone in early Christianity would have come up to you and said, you're being a real Balaam right now, that would have been an insult. But we don't know who Balaam is probably. And so we have to look back. Balaam is in the book of Numbers, way, way back in the front of your Bible. He was this pagan prophet hired by the king of Moaz named Balak. We see his name in here too, to pronounce this kind of gypsy curse on the Israelites who were invading Moab. They were coming to get their land back. Balak says, hey, Balaam, go out there and pronounce this curse on them so that they'll lose. And so, so God confounds Balaam. His donkey talks to him. It's a weird story. But God confounds Balaam to the point that he actually pronounces a blessing on the Israelites. And then Balaam realizes he's about to lose his job and probably his life. And so what Balaam does after he realizes the mistake that he made is that he goes and rounds up a bunch of real pretty Moabite women. He goes and gets the money beats, as Dwight Schrute would say. And he parades them in front of the Israelite men. And he says, hey, look at all these Moabite women. Do you really want to come in here and kill all of them? They're going to sleep with you. So you can, like, you can hook up with them. And then like, they'll take you to their worship services and you'll see like, how fun that is. And the Israelite men, because they're men, fall victim 
to Balaam's schemes. And so Jesus is coming in and he's saying, that's what the Nicolaitans are doing to you. They're taking this, this beautiful, sweet gospel that I have for you and they're telling you that you can add to it. That you can have, you can have that, you can enjoy a little sex, uh, sexual immorality and follow Jesus at the same time. He won't care. You can bow and eat a Caesar. It doesn't need to cost you guys your social or your financial capital. Jesus won't care. This is the message of the Nicolaitans. What's the big deal? Just come in here. Like you can live at peace if you just say Caesar's Lord. And then you can get invited to all the festivals. You can get invited to all the guilds. And you can be a part of the HOA, which is terrible anyway. And you can be a part of all these clubs as long as you just play the game. The Nicolaitans maybe are quoting Satan himself in the Garden of Eden when he asked Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say that you couldn't have your cake and eat it too? Did God really say that you have to worship him alone? The Nicolaitans appealed to their desire to compromise and just being a good citizen and trade the commands of God for this false unity. If the coexist bumper stickers had been around, they, were, they probably would have been made in Pergamum. Except you can't. You can't coexist because Jesus won't let that happen. It never works out for the people of God when they trade gospel freedom for a little security. We see this in the Old Testament all the time. It's the cycle that they're always caught in. God tells Israel, I will protect you. I will fight for you. I'm on your side. My angels have your back. And Israel's like, that's cool, but we're still going to make a deal with the Moabites. Or we're still going to make a deal with the Assyrians because they got a lot of tanks. Like, they can keep us real safe. And then, and then God always lets them be overtaken, and then they're in trouble again, and then they repent, and God tells them, okay, I've brought you out of that. Let's do this again. And then they fall again. What the Nicolaitans were saying is this. The gospel of Jesus is good, but what we have for you is better. Which is an absurd thing to think about. The grace of Jesus that was displayed and demonstrated to us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is this 200 proof grace that comes at you like a fire hose and covers you in the righteousness of Christ and washes you clean from the dirty sin done both by you and to you and that grace comes in and it transforms your heart and it topples the idols and it places Jesus at the center of your life and through him, he becomes the lens in which you see the world and you live amongst this brokenness and you walk amongst this brokenness and you can still proclaim this message of Jesus that, there, that there's one who loved me when I did not love myself and that there's one who promises to renew this world and that there's one who's coming back to get his people and that Jesus died on your behalf and if, you've, if you find yourself in him that you're accepted by the God of heaven and your hearts are changed, and the Nicolaitans are like, sure, but, but I sure like those temple prostitutes. I don't want to give that up. And y'all, try to add anything to the gospel of Jesus and it ceases to be the gospel. If you try to add something to what Jesus has for you, it ceases to be the gospel. It just makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't improve it. It doesn't enhance it. It kind of just ruins both things. It's like a spork. Like you have a spoon and a fork, and then you have a crappy instrument. It doesn't make it any better. It makes it worse. And Jesus is coming in, and he's saying these Nicolaitans 
are promising so much to you, but I promise you what they're telling you is not the gospel and it's gonna end in your destruction. So this idolatry that you have, this love that you have, if you put it above me and try to add it to what I've done for you, it's not gonna end up well. You can like Jesus, the Nicolaitans are saying, but you can also like your standing in the community. Like both of those things are fine. You can like Jesus and you can like your comfort, which means this, that your comfort is what you're really worshiping. Your convenience is what you're really worshiping. That's all the Nicolaitans are offering. And let me tell you something, y'all. Your boy up here loves comfort. It's hot in here. I love Jesus, and it's hot. I want it to be 68. <laughs> Your boy up here loves Jesus, and he loves Doritos. And when I'm sad and when I'm stressed out, I will strap on that feedback like there are diamonds at the bottom of that thing. <laughs> and I will go hard on it. But here's also the thing. That's just the sin I'm comfortable telling you about. But here's what we know. I don't know what it is for you, but you know what it is. And Jesus certainly knows what it is. Because when I'm, when I'm in that moment of stress and when I'm in that moment of doubt, I want to turn to something that I think I can control, something that's tangible, something that's easy. But that's what idolatry always does. It always overpromises and underdelivers. And as I said before, I don't know what it is that you're taking in to make the gospel more palatable, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that you know what it is Jesus certainly knows what it is. And it's going to offer temporary satisfaction. It's going to burn hot for a second. It's like setting dryer lint on fire. It looks cool. It gets super hot, but it kind of goes away. And y'all, in a room this size and in a city like ours, culturally, we have our own idols. There's the easy ones like success. There's the easy ones like a house on Time Boulevard, a record deal, a spouse, a pedal tavern, Nashville is a city that promises so much and delivers on so little. It's a city that promises self-discovery. Graduate college, then I'm going to move here, and I'm really going to find out who I am. And then we commit ourselves to finding out, plumbing the depths of who we are, y'all, which isn't wrong until it's wrong. John Calvin would say, plumb the depths of who you are because by doing that, you actually find out who God is. And if you spend your time plumbing the depths of who God is, you're gonna find out more about who you are. But if you're finding out who you are just for the sake of finding out who you are, you're wasting your time. You're never gonna find it. Because what it actually, what you're searching for is, is security. If I can get to the depths of who I am, then other people can't tell me who I am. And Jesus can't tell me who I am. And then I eliminate all the need. I won't need you. I won't need Jesus. I won't need this community. I won't have these crazy thoughts all the time. Or if I run over everyone in pursuit of success and climb the ladder, then maybe folks will think I'm important. If I'm a national and I just look cool, if it looks like everything is effortless for me, then I can make it. And Jesus is telling these Pergamese Christians what they are pitching to you as the gospel is not the gospel at all. And here's what he's also telling them. If you've been duped by the Nicolaitans, you can still repent. 
Y'all, if you've fallen victim to your idols, you can still repent. If you've got air in your lungs, y'all, there's time to repent. So Jesus is saying, I hate what you've done. I hate who they are, but you can still turn back. There's still time to repent and turn back to me because the Nicolaitans are writing these theological checks that they can't cash. And I love you too much to let you continue down this path of destruction. So I want you to remember Antipas. Remember how he died for what he believed, how they killed him. Pergamese Church, Midtown 12 South, Antipas is with Jesus. Death didn't do anything but Uber him to the throne room of God. So Jesus is saying, the worst thing they can do to you is take your life from you, and then you're with me. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul talks about this in his letters. Paul says, worst case scenario is that I live. And Jesus is saying to the Pergamese Christians, be like Antipas, because even if they kill you and you lose your status and they make a mockery of you, you haven't lost me and you never will. There's time for you to repent. What you receive from Jesus speaks far better than what you can get from this momentary hit you find elsewhere because what you are looking for, Christian and non-Christian, if you're here, welcome. What you're looking for this morning is an identity. Every single person in this room is looking for it. Which is exactly what Jesus gives us. It's what brings us to our last point, the name. If we look at verse 17, Jesus says, give yourself over to the false teaching and you'll receive the just punishment for that. But for those of you who remain faithful, you get the hidden manna. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. You get the bread of life. You get Jesus. Thinking back to the idol of self-discovery that's all over the city, or feel free to insert the idol of choice. Let's pretend for just a second that you can actually get it. Let's just be weird enough to think that we can actually do it. You can actually find out who you are. You can know yourself fully, and you can know yourself exhaustively. You've got it all figured out, then what? What do you do? What do we do? If your idol promises those things to you, and you actually get them, if we can pretend for a second that you'd actually get it, then what do we do? It's been said the greatest problem for an atheist is that when something great happens to them, they have nobody to thank. Like, that's what it is. It just leads you back to you, which is a terrible place to be. Because when we're trying to find out who we are, we're actually trying to get away from ourselves. I don't know if you've watched the Swap Kings documentary on Netflix about Urban Meyer and the terrible, awful Florida Gators. Uh, from 05 to 09, they're actually a wonderful football team. Um, but after they won their second championship, their second national championship, they're, you know, they're on top of the world. It was highly unlikely that they were even going to do it. And so they get, they, they get their second national championship, which is what everybody in this documentary is longing for. And they're all celebrating as a team. And they're doing, the documentarian is, is conducting these interviews with these guys who are on the team. And they said they were all looking around for Coach Meyer and nobody could find him. And so they interviewed Coach Meyer and they're like, where were you when your team was celebrating? And he said, I was on the phone calling recruits because I knew I was going to have to do it again. Y'all, that's what your idols do to you. That's what your self-discovery is going to do to you. It's going to demand more of you and more of you and more of you because you can't get away from you. So there's always going to be things about you you got to find out. And it's going to drive you mad. 
But then Jesus comes in and he says, let that lead you to me. Let this self-discovery that you have when you deep dive into the, and plumb the depths of who you are, what you'll find is that you're a sinner in need of a great savior. And I'm a great savior who loves great sinners. It's gonna lead you back to me. Because here's the thing about being self-actualized. Here's the thing about finding out who you are. Here's the thing about your idol actually maybe working out for you. Is that information is not transformation. You know this. You can have all the information in the world. It's not going to change a thing about who you are. All it does is lead you on this road back to you, and that's a road you don't want to travel. But if we can let it lead us to Jesus... Instead of this process starting all over again, we actually find ourselves in Jesus who walks that path with us. Because verse 17 says that we're given a white stone with our name on it that only we know and that he will know. And y'all, this is one of the most beautiful and probably flyoverable promises in all the Bible. That when it comes to the end of all things, that when you encounter Jesus, when he gives you a hug and when he welcomes you in, to eternity with him, he's going to hand you a white stone that has a name on it that tells you exactly who you are. Why is it white? I don't know and I don't care. But what I do know and what I do care about is this. It's a name that you've never been called before. It's not the name that your parents gave you. It's not the name that your bully gave you. It's not the name that your trauma gave you. It's not the name that your ex-boyfriend or your ex-girlfriend gave you. It's not the name that your abuser gave you. It's not the name that Jack Daniels gave you. It's a name that Jesus knows and Jesus alone. And he hands it to you and he says, this is who you are. All those things that you thought you were. All those promises that the idols made to you and they failed you. This is who you are. You're mine. And it goes so much deeper than that. And we have a hard time connecting with this because we don't know a love like this. No one has ever cared about us in this way. But Jesus says, everything you're looking for and everything you're fighting for and the faithfulness that you're striving for is based on the faithfulness that I give to you. And when we meet, I'm gonna give you a new name. And everything you've thought about yourself and everything that's been said about you will, will burn in hell where it belongs. That Jesus can come and look at you. And is there room in your spiritual DNA for a Jesus who loves you like this? who could really love you like this, who can come to you and not yell at you, but he comes to you and whispers to you, and he hands you a new name. Is there room in your spiritual DNA for Jesus who looks at you with pornless eyes, who doesn't look at you as an object, but instead looks at you as an object of his affection, that the rock he hands you is really what you're looking for? That Jesus is different. He's not the God of the Nicolaitans telling you to take what you want. He's a God that says, I came to get what I want. And what I want is you. And I'm gonna stop at nothing to get it. That when he says that nothing can separate you, separate you from him, he really means it. Not even you. That he's gonna come and pursue you, that Jesus is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Are we willing to give our lives over to someone who can truly love us back? Because your idols can't do that. This letter to the Pergamese Christians, y'all, 
can be summed up in one verse, and it's this. Perseverance trumps zeal every time. Perseverance always wins. That when the Nicolaitans are so zealous to get what they want and they try to bring everyone in, Jesus is saying, persevere. Be faithful. Don't fall for what they're selling. That anytime a new teaching has popped up, something new that promises that you can know yourself, it all fizzles out and the gospel remains. 2,000 years, we're still talking about it. There's a Jesus who's wildly in love with you and who has promised to secure his church and to protect her and avenge her and fight for her and redeem her. And will you allow yourself to turn from the myriad of ways in which you've run from him and you've run from a love like this because it's too much. It feels too much, but you're not too much for him. And will you allow that Will you allow yourself to see that love and allow that to run back to him instead of away from him, to come back to him, to see this white rock that he's gonna give you and to hear a new name. It's an invitation to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I must say for myself, there's something wildly unnerving about this. Because I know who I am. I know what I've done. I feel like I'm the worst. And Jesus, you say, yes, you are. But I still want to marry you. I still love you. You're still my child. Jesus, forgive me when I don't believe that. Forgive us when we don't believe it. I said, Lord, would you make clear the path back to you in these next few moments while we sing together and confess together um, that we could confess even in just this hour that you are, uh, that you are Lord uh, and even make that empty promise again that we'll never stray from you knowing, that, knowing full well that you're gonna have to come get us. So Jesus, would you hold us close? Would you hold us fast? Would you remind us, let us feel the grip that you have on us uh, even when our grip on you uh, is not very tight. Uh, Lord, that's the hope. And uh, we lean into that. We throw all ourselves, we, know of, we throw all we know of ourselves uh, onto all we know of that promise. Uh, so Jesus, come and get your people. As John closed this book, Lord, come quickly. We, we pray the same thing. In your name, amen.